then I want to read from our passage this morning from 1 Timothy. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. Well, we read our passage today for, from the law, and I'm going to give you a sermon that you probably wouldn't be expecting if you just read through the text. What I'm going to do today is explain to you um, why I'm a Baptist. You read through the text and you go, where does that come from? Well, we'll see as we go along. I'm a Baptist and not an infant Baptist, and I'm going to help you understand that. I'm going to help you see what the significant significance of baptism is. And in the middle of the discussion on riches and false doctrine, suddenly the Apostle Paul turns to Timothy and he tells him to fight the good fight by remembering that moment when he made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So what in the world is going on in Paul's mind to cause him to turn in that direction at the end of his letter? That's what we'll look at today. What in the world does that have to do with fleeing evil? and pursuing righteousness, and Jesus' death and his return, which are also mentioned here in this short section in the middle of the last chapter of First Timothy. So to get to this, what I want to do is I want to tell you a fairly long story that comes from the Old Testament. This is vitally important for you understanding the foundation behind baptism that we're looking at this morning. The man was born as the third son of Jacob and Leah. Can you think of who that is? We don't know anything about him until one day after he had grown up, a man approached his father and he had a huge entourage. As he and his brothers were coming in from working the fields, even from far off, they could tell that this man was a prince of the land. As they drew near and began listening to the ensuing discussion, they became indignant because they had discovered that their precious sister had been seized and raped by the prince's son, a man named Shechem. Now his father had come to their home to ask for her hand in marriage because the young man was smitten with her. But the sons of Jacob deceived the prince in their marriage arrangement. They told them that the only way that this could ever happen was if the entire tribe swore to become as they were, which is circumcised in the foreskin. This seemed a very small thing to Shechem and to his father, although I think to the entourage it most certainly could not have pleased them with that turn of events. Nevertheless, the covenant was cut, and all of the men of that tribe underwent the knife just a few days later. Here's where we enter the deceit blossoming to full fruition. On the third day, as these men were still lying there very sore, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon, and the third-born, Levi, take their swords, and they come against the city while it felt secure, and it killed all the males, putting the prince and his son to the sword, plundering their possessions, seizing their sister, and heading home. When their father caught wind of their breach of covenant, Jacob said to Levi and his older brother, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But the two sons believed that what they did was honorable, and the chapter ends by them simply asking, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Now on his deathbed, several chapters later, Jacob is motioning son by son for each to come and stand by his bed and receive his last words, and he calls Simeon and Levi together. Simeon and Levi are brothers, weapons of violence and are their swords. In their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. How would you like that for the last will and testament of your father? 
Now, whereas it appears that Jacob is cursing his sons, the Lord had other plans, at least for Levi. The book of Exodus opens with the Lord calling Moses from the burning bush on the slopes of Mount Sinai and sending him to be his chosen instrument to free his people out of slavery to Egypt. But Moses protested, and the Lord's anger was kindled against him. And the Lord said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? Now, it's often not considered at this very early stage in the story that both Moses and Aaron are Levites. But it will soon be understood why that must be. After Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and command him to let the people go, finally, ten terrible plagues later, Pharaoh's heart is moved by God to oblige, and the people triumphantly plunder the Egyptians on their way out of Egypt. After the heroic Red Sea miracle, Moses leads them back to the place of his original encounter with God. And there, at the foot of the mountain, the Lord promises the entire nation this, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God told them that he was about to come in glory on the top of the mountain to make a covenant with them all. And in preparation, they had to wash their clothes and be ready. But neither they nor the priestly class who was actually there mentioned in Exodus 19, whom we do not know much detail about, none of them were allowed to come near to the mountain or they would die. Sure enough, the Lord came to Moses and he gave him ten great commandments, which are called the covenant of Moses. When he came back down, Moses approached his brother Aaron and his two oldest sons, Nadab and Abihu. And he also gathered the 70 elders, which in Septuagint are called the Presbyteros, from which we get Presbyterian, the elders of Israel, all of whom the Lord had told Moses to take with him back up the slopes of Sinai. Now they're allowed to go up at least partway so that they could actually behold God with their eyes and eat with him after Moses cut the covenant and then sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice upon the people. And this is exactly what happened. And it says they beheld God, and they ate, and they drank. From there, Moses was summoned alone to the top of the mountain, where for 40 days and 40 nights he would dwell alone with God and receive the entire law from the finger of God on the mountain. As part of that law, the Lord swore to Moses that he would give to Aaron and his sons, the priesthood. And when 40 days were ended and Moses was making his way back down the mountain, as he approached Joshua, all of a sudden that great warrior hears what he thinks is the sound of war in the camp. And Moses says, that's not the sound of war. That's the sound of singing. And it turns out the people could no longer stomach the absence of their leader. And they quickly forsook the God who had covenanted with them and turned to worship him in a way that they thought might get his attention. Moses was furious with their golden calf to Yahweh, and he threw the tablets of the covenant to the ground, shattering them in pieces, symbolizing their treachery to the covenant and to the priesthood that they had been given, if only they would obey. And now war was truly about to erupt. The people, it says, broke loose. Moses stood in the gate of the camp, and he says, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And curiously, it says, All the sons of Levi gathered around him. Moses commanded them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi, like their ancestors' namesake before them, routed the people, and many people fell that day. Now there's a third story that shares many similarities with the Levi and then the Levites, and it also involves a son of Levi. Numbers 25 tells about a horrific sight that begins to unfold at the entrance of the tent of meeting. It occurs after the men of Israel begin having relations with Moabite women who entice them into sacrificing to eating the covenant meals of, and bowing down to the foreign gods. In this way, Israel began worshiping, it says, the Baal of Peor. The Lord takes great offense at this, and he commands that each man and his family be killed on the spot. 
no one moved until Aaron's grandson, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, takes his spear and begins obeying the command of the Lord. And for this, God rewards Phinehas with a great covenant promise. He says, tell him I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood. Psalm 106 is a commentary on this. It says, but Phinehas stood up and intervened, and the plague was checked. This was credited to him as righteousness for endless generations to come. Same exact language, by the way, that's used of Abraham when God justifies him. So what do all these stories have in common? First of all, they all have in common the man Levi. That's really important. Second of all, they're all acts of war, aren't they? Fighting. But these wars are not, as Jacob selfishly thought, evil. Rather, they are holy wars being carried out to purify and cleanse the cities and camps of sin. In this way, you could say that these Levites were all fighting the good fight. But there's more here than meets the eye. Moving from Phineas backwards, we can see the fact that these men are all from the tribe of Levi is not an accident. God told Phineas, the grandson of Aaron, that he would give him a covenant of a lasting priesthood. But this was not a mere personal covenant, as so many people have thought. Nor was it a covenant that arose out of thin air, as if God just decided right there on the spot to do that for Phineas. No. God gave the, this covenant of the priesthood to Phineas because he came from the tribe of Levi. We know this because Aaron before him was chosen by God to bear the office of high priest, while his descendants would bear the priestly duties as those assigned to help the high priest. And in fact, the language used of God's great gift to Aaron is covenantal language. Listen to Numbers 18. The Lord said to Aaron, you will have no inheritance in their land, in, uh, nor will you have any share among them. I am your share and your inheritance among the Israelites. And when God says, I am your, that's covenantal language that reminds us of the covenant promise God gave to Abram. God said, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. There's more than this. Though not descended from Aaron, the entire tribe of Levi, the cousins of Aaron, were also chosen for special priestly duties, namely to serve and to guard the tabernacle as assistance to the priests. The way it appears that the priests of Israel, who were at the foot of Mount Sinai, were supposed to serve and guard Aaron, but they didn't, leading the nation into its false worship with the golden calf. Why is it so important that Aaron be a Levite? Well, Moses hints at it in Deuteronomy 33. He says, and of Levi, he said, give to Levi your Thummim and your Urim to your godly man, for he has observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and the whole burnt offerings on your altar. Now, based on this passage and others like it, the Jews were fairly unanimous before and during the time of the New Testament that God actually gave Levi, the son of Jacob, the covenant of the priesthood. So, for example, the book of Jubilees says this, May the God of all, the Lord of all ages, bless you, Levi, and your sons in all ages. May the Lord give you and your seed very great honor. May he draw you and your seed near him, uh, near to him from all flesh to serve in his sanctuary as the angels of the presence and the holy ones serve in heaven. And then Levi dreams that he's been appointed and ordained a priest of the most high God. And on that day, the Benjamin is born, Jacob turns to Levi and it says that he puts the garments of the priesthood upon him and Levi served as priest in Bethel. This is an ancient tradition. It's not found in the Bible, but nevertheless, it goes back to at least three centuries before Paul that sees Levi himself as being elevated to the priestly office. And this explains to me why we find the later prophets of Israel, like Nehemiah and Jeremiah and Malachi, all talking about something called the covenant with Levi, 
rather than something like the covenant with Phineas. So that means that now we have a third thing in common in all of these stories. Somehow, each of these activities of these men is related to God's covenant with Levi. Their fighting, warring against evil is a holy covenantal war. This leads me to explain the next step in our story, which is the covenantal sign of the Levites. All right, so, so far, I've said nothing at all about baptism. But I want us to think about this subject for a minute. It's very common in questions about baptism, especially with, when dealing with people who believe in covenant theology, for them to equate baptism with circumcision. Uh, very often, paedo-baptists, infant baptists, will say that baptism replaces circumcision. Now, how would they get this? First, they call every covenant after the fall the covenant of grace. This is a man-made term, but nevertheless, that's how they see it. I have to sneeze. It's like right here, <laughs> driving me crazy. It'll come out one of these minutes. So, <laughs> Second of all, they will say that the sign, singular, of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament was circumcision. So, for example, they'll go to Genesis you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Third, they will note that circumcision was given to infants. The entire nation gave this sign to all of the infant males. Fourth thing is that they do not talk about the covenant of Levi in their covenant theology. It's just missing. Fifth, they understand that the new covenant, in the new covenant, Christ now brings circumcision to fulfillment. Sixth, the new covenant also has a sign. That sign is baptism. Seventh, since the Old Testament sign of the covenant was circumcision and the New Testament sign of the covenant is baptism, and since circumcision has been fulfilled, then what they'll say is we have to look for changes to the way the New Testament sign is carried out. Otherwise, if it doesn't change it, we have no business changing it either. And since the New Testament shows that women are baptized, for example, this is an example of change, but it nowhere tells us that infants are not to receive the sign, and therefore we're not to change the example given in the Old Testament. So that's essentially their, their argument. Now there's some things here that no one can disagree with. For example, God did give Abraham the sign of circumcision, and this was carried out by all his descendants, and it was given to infants. It's also true that the new covenant in Christ brings circumcision to fulfillment and that it also has an initiation sign, which is baptism. But that's where my agreement ends. Looking at this list again, I follow the Reformed Baptist view of the covenants, which is not that they are all to be lumped together under a man-made phrase, the covenant of grace, but that all the covenants have similarities and differences. They're similar in that they are all an unfolding in progressive ways of the promise that's given to Eve and that her seed would crush the head of the serpent. And therefore, you go to every single one of these covenants, you will find seed language in all of them. This very progressive nature of the unfolding of the covenants, though, in the Old Testament is very important. The differences teach us, for example, that each covenant has its own sign. Remember I said what they'll say is the covenant of grace has a sign, circumcision. But what I believe is no, there is not one sign of the Old Testament covenant. There are many. For example, if the Paedo-Baptists are correct, then Noah's covenant is part of the covenant of grace, isn't it? And yet Noah had his own sign, the rainbow. Moses' covenant was in their view, the covenant of grace, and yet Moses was told that the Sabbath is its sign. Now, it's at just this point that the covenant with Levi has to be discussed. If this covenant is not allowed to be part of your system, even though it's mentioned many times in the Old Testament, then what I'm about to say will not even dawn upon you. The covenant with Levi had its own sign. That sign was baptism and clothing in the ordination ceremony of the priest. Did you hear that? It's not circumcision. The kids were already circumcised. Then they have to undergo something else. This is found in Exodus 29. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. 
You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat of the robe of the ephod. The apostle tells us in Galatians, listen to this language, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ or clothed yourselves with Christ. That's where the language is coming from, from Paul. It comes from the ordination of the priest. In other words, baptism comes from baptism, not circumcision. Now, I have a lot more to say. Let's go to Jesus' baptism. We're going to move to the New Testament here for a minute. All four Gospels make a big deal of Jesus being baptized, right? It's in every one of them. But why is that so important? Well, many people have said things like, well, what Jesus was doing was he was identifying with us in the water. Or Jesus was being counted among the transgressors. Or Jesus was just obeying John or something like that. Now, according to Justin Martyr, the Jews believe that the Messiah is unknown. And in fact, he did not even know himself until Elijah would come and anoint him and make him manifest to all. And so Justin is worth hearing a little bit from. He says, for all the Jews expect that Christ will be a man born of men and that Elijah, when he comes, will anoint him. And he's talking about this in the context of baptism. Well, Justin uses the word chrysi, from which we get the word christen. It means to anoint. Curiously, at the end of the long ritual ordaining the priest, guess what it says? You shall therefore anoint Aaron and his sons, and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. So the priestly baptism and clothing is an anointing ceremony. Exactly the same way Justin saying the Jews believed baptism was. So what's happening is to, to the priests is exactly what Jesus is undergoing at his baptism. Do you remember when they asked John the Baptist at his baptism if he was Elijah? Well, Jesus later identifies that John's baptism was exactly what they were expecting, and they missed it. Now, we've only just scratched the surface. Justin says that at this moment, the Jews expected that the Messiah would be manifest to all. This is almost exactly what John's gospel tells us when it says, John the Baptist said, I came baptizing with water that Messiah might be revealed to Israel. We still haven't answered why Jesus was baptized, though. I think Justin comes very close, closer than almost anybody else. It was to anoint him, or to better, to ordain the Messiah. But the martyr did not see the true prize at the end of the trail that he was walking down. For this, you have to understand all the qualifications that a priest has to meet in order to be ordained into the ministry of the Levitical covenant. If he does not meet these qualifications, he cannot serve as a priest. He just becomes a regular person. They had to be washed at the ordination. They could not begin their ministry and have this until they were 30 years old. They had to be called by God like Aaron was. They had to be washed by somebody who was already a priest. The priest had to be without defect, and so did the person being baptized. Had to be a male. Had to begin the ministry as soon as the ordination is concluded. That, they, they're done with the ordination. They walk into the tabernacle. They start serving. And then they finally had to be descended from Aaron. Now, what's incredible is that we are told explicitly and deliberately that Jesus meets every one of these criteria except one of them. Jesus is baptized. He is 30 years old at his baptism. He is called directly by God at his baptism. He's baptized by John the Baptist, who is, guess what, a Levitical priest. Jesus is without spot or blemish. Jesus is a male, and he begins his ministry immediately after his baptism. In fact, the only qualification our Lord does not meet is that he's not descended from Aaron. But it's just here that it becomes truly amazing because Hebrews goes into this long discussion about the fact that Jesus is, in fact, carrying out priestly ministry throughout his three and a half years after the baptism. Indeed, he's fulfilling things that only the high priest in the line of Aaron could fulfill. 
especially sacrificing himself as the Lamb of God. How could he do this? Hebrew says it's because Jesus is a high priest that's even greater than Aaron. He comes from the line of Melchizedek. And so his genealogy is greater than Aaron's. And in fact, Hebrews even says that it's as if Levi himself is paying a tithe to Melchizedek when Abraham goes and gives him a tithe because he's in the loins of his ancestor. In other words, Jesus, in fact, meets every qualification, but he does it better than Aaron ever did because Jesus was perfect. Now, we need to see just a little bit more of our Lord after his baptism. If Jesus is being baptized into his own new covenant ministry, we would expect him to be clothed at that moment, wouldn't we? Sure enough, the Holy Spirit descends upon him and empowers him. Immediately after his baptism, Matthew tells us that our Lord went out to do battle with the devil. Like Moses, who was on top of the mountain for 40 days and nights, Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and nights. After his supernatural fast, our Lord did battle. Jesus used the weapons of the word, which is called by Paul in Hebrews the sword, to fight the devil, and he won. Immediately after this, Jesus goes into the synagogue and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now I want to point out several things here about this. First one is that the Spirit has anointed Christ. He's clothed him. Second, Christ is now going to proclaim the good news. Now listen to what Paul says about doing that. He calls it a priestly ministry. In Romans, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Third thing is the language of doing warfare. Just like Levi and his descendants, he will set the captives free. In fact, when you do a careful study of Isaiah 61, which Jesus reads from, you find that the whole thing is filled with priestly language. And so as soon as the Lord finishes reading, he begins his ministry of healing, saving, proclaiming, fighting, serving, and guarding. And this goes all the way to the night on which he is betrayed, to which we'll come back to in a moment. This is all covenant with Levi fulfillment stuff. So, What is this, 20 minutes in now? Finally ready to make sense of our very short passage in Timothy. We're going to look at verses 11 through 15, the beginning of it, in chapter 6. This contains most of the interlude between the teaching on riches that begins and ends the chapter. I want you to remember that. He's just talked about riches. Now he talks about this. Then he's going to talk about riches again. This feels very out of place. Why talk about riches, pause, and then return to that subject? It's because he's forming a chiasm. This chiasm contains our text today and the climactic doxology that I'm going to look at next time for our last sermon in 1 Timothy. Paul begins, But as for you, O man of God... Now this is a rather remarkable thing to call Timothy, because he's already called him a young man. He said, you're young, Timothy. Now he calls him, O man of God... Now, there's several people in the Old Testament called a man of God. Moses is called the man of God. The angel of the Lord is called the man of God. David is called the man of God. But there's only one man in all of Scripture that is elsewhere addressed by someone else as a man of God, and that is Elijah. Interesting, we already brought Elijah up a minute ago, didn't we? Could there be a reason for the seemingly insignificant connection? I believe there is. Elijah is usually thought of as a prophet, and rightly so. However, there has been a long tradition in Jewish and Christian circles that Elijah was actually a priest. Strangely, the Jews sometimes identified him as Phineas. This tradition extends all the way back to at least the first century, if not further. 
Why else would the Jews be expecting Elijah to baptize the Messiah if he was not a priest? Therefore, it's certainly possible that Paul knew this tradition, and thus in directly calling Timothy a man of God, he's deliberately summoning to the mind Elijah and the priesthood. We're going to continue. O man of God, flee these things. What things? Well, the pleasures of riches and the deceit of doctrine, among other things. Indeed, he is now to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Listen to the scripture in regard to the priests and Levites regarding these things. Malachi says, He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. To Levi, he said, Give to Levi your Thummim and your Urim to your godly one. So he's godly. Throughout the law, the priests were to call the people back to faith. So there's the word faith. They are to proclaim the steadfast love of God. There's those two words. The only one, in fact, not listed that we can't really find associated with Levi, if you heard the beginning of the sermon, is gentleness. And I think we've seen plenty of reasons why that is. They were to be warriors. But it is exactly against that backdrop of warfare of the Levites that you have to understand the need for gentleness with Timothy. Because in the very next words, look at what he's told to do. Gentleness and then fight the good fight of faith. Isn't that fascinating? This fight has to be in gentleness. Now people usually associate this fighting that Paul's talking about here with the gymnasium in Ephesus that we've looked at before. Maybe the imagery is like of boxing or something like that. It's certainly possible and not mutually exclusive to what I'm saying. It would make sense for Paul to use that kind of a metaphor here. However, fighting is precisely what we have seen associated with the entire covenant with Levi. Furthermore, there are two words here. Fight is a verb and the good fight is a noun. The first word appears only 15 times in the New Testament in the Septuagint. That includes the Apocrypha. Three of those 15 are here in Timothy. Five of them are in the books of Maccabees. So over half of their uses are in those two places. Of course, the Maccabees are books written about the priests taking back the temple in the wars against the Greeks. One of these references is really interesting. It says, but alchemists contended or strove or fought for the high priesthood. The second word appears only 21 times total. Of those, 11, over half of them are in the Maccabees. In the New Testament, quite often these words are closely associated with Paul and his priestly ministry of the gospel. So listen to Corinthians. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. And everyone who is fighting exercises self-control in all things. Or I think this one's in Colossians, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me from you for you to make the word of God fully known. For this I fight with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. And importantly, in the parallel in 1 Timothy 4 where this word is used, Paul says, for to this end we toil and strive, we fight. And in that section, Paul has Leviticus in mind. In other words, there is very good reason to see this phrase, fight the good fight, not just as boxing, but through priestly lenses. The warfare Timothy is to wage, though, is different. He's not to kill the opponent of the gospel with the sword. This is not the Spanish Inquisition. Did you expect the Spanish Inquisition there? Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. I'm dating myself when I say Rather, it says, in righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfast, and gentleness, he is to wage the warfare. First, he's to wage it against false teaching and also against the devil. And we've seen plenty of both of those in this letter. More positively, he's to take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Okay, so somehow... The idea of eternal life 
is related to his calling when he made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, when would he have made this confession? So here's where I, I've, I've wanted to do this for years, and I have not had time, so I justified it this week. You're not going to believe it, but I really did this. It took all day. I decided to take a deep dive into the commentaries. I looked at 57 commentaries on this phrase. Of those, one said this refers to Timothy's confession when he became a member of the church. There's absolutely no justification behind that one. Three said it absolutely refers to his ordination ceremony when he became an officer or an elder. And about 13 others agreed that this is probable. However, the vast majority, all but four, said that it could refer to Timothy's baptism, to his baptism. And of those, 19 said it most likely does, and 21 said it absolutely refers to his baptism. Along these lines, consider these fascinating connections to money that we find on the lips of John the Baptist. Remember I said Paul's talking riches, bap, confession, and then riches again? Listen to this. This is when John the Baptist is baptizing, and all of a sudden money comes up. I had never noticed this before. First of all, the passage speaks of warfare. The axe is laid at the roots of the trees. Then he talks about fruit in keeping with repentance. That reminds me of the kinds of things Timothy is just to pursue. And then the crowd asks John, what are they to do? And he essentially tells them, don't be selfish with what they have. He says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Next, the tax collectors come to him and say, what should we do? And it says, they said this ad, they came to be baptized. And he said, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Money. Finally, the soldiers asked him, what shall we do? And he says, do not exhort money from anyone and to be content with your wages. As I read that, I thought, boy, it is obvious that Paul is now talking about baptism as the place where Timothy made the good confession because he's doing it right between his discussion on riches. In other words, baptism has implications to how we live in regard to our wealth. Now, of those who said Paul absolutely refers to Timothy's baptism, I find it fascinating that at least 10 of these are infant Baptists. While of those who said it was likely, we can add at least a half a dozen more. Now, why would I care about that? It's for this reason. In 2 Timothy, we will learn that Timothy has been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ, since infancy. I find this absolutely fascinating. In the introduction sermon on 1 Timothy, we saw that the Greeks and Romans had a very well mapped out view of the stages of a life of a man. There were usually seven of them. The earliest three were infancy, childhood, and boyhood, which went roughly up to 21 years of age. The word used by Paul here is translated by Jerome as infancy. In other words, Timothy has known the scriptures since infancy, his entire life. Furthermore, this fits with what we know about his conversion, because his mother and his grandmother had both become Christians very, very early on. Perhaps even before Paul came to town, maybe through some convert in Jerusalem, the day of Peter's first great sermon, who then went back to Ephesus. We don't know. I argued in that earlier sermon that Timothy was probably converted around 12 to 13 years of age, that he joined Paul on his second missionary journey when he was about 16 to 18, and he was probably between 25 and 30 at the time that this letter was written, which is also interesting because it was at 25 that the Levites were to be ordained through water, and then it's 30 that the priests are to be ordained through water in their ministry. In other words, it's a great way, a great age to remind Timothy to consider his baptism from years ago. Have you understood yet why all that matters to the question of infant baptism? Here's my thought. If Paul is having Timothy remember his baptism, then obviously he's old enough to remember it, right? Indeed, he confessed the faith publicly at that time, as has always been the practice of the church. And yet, if he had known the scriptures since infancy, if his mother and grandmother were already Christians, why wasn't he baptized as an infant? 
My answer is that this is precisely what the New Testament itself teaches about the origins of baptism. Priests received their baptism into the priesthood at age 30, not infancy. Jesus was 30 when he was baptized. He'd already been circumcised on the eighth day according to the law. Circumcision has been fulfilled in the new covenant in the circumcision of the heart. Baptism, which is the sprinkling baptisms of the Old Testament, both both with blood and water, are to purify things. Those are also finding their fulfillment in sprinkling in the New Testament when Jesus dies on the cross and sprinkles his blood and water comes out. But immersion, water baptism, continues as an outward sign of the inward grace that God has already saved you and is now setting you apart for your ministry into the priesthood of the believer. Now, the New Testament says some things have changed. You can now be a woman. You can be a eunuch. You can be a Gentile. You don't have to be 30 anymore. What we never find, however, is that you can be an infant. And this makes sense because infants don't serve as priests. From what I've seen in my life on this planet so far, what I see infants do is cooing and crying and drinking lots of milk. That's what they do. It's very important to understand that baptism is an ordination into your lifelong calling as a Christian to serve God in his New Testament temple as his New Testament priest, where you serve and guard the high priestly ministry of Christ with your life, where you offer up your bodies as living sacrifices, where you offer up your prayers as incense in the New Testament temple, where you suffer for Christ as a drink offering being poured out, where you offer money is a fragrant gift offering, where you carry out the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel, where you're clothed in the Spirit's ministerial clothing of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. But you also have to understand that baptism, baptism is, in fact, warfare. The Christian life is a life of warfare, priestly warfare. For a host of reasons that I don't have time to pursue this morning, Dr. Heiser explains, baptism in the New Testament theology is a loyalty oath. It's a public avowal of who is in the Lord's, on the Lord's side in the cosmic war between good and evil. So you're baptized and you would take an oath and you would say, I renounce the kingdom of Satan and I want to be in the kingdom of the Lord. Now, Bentley Hart says of the early church, and this is how baptism developed along these lines. He says, the life of faith was, before all else, spiritual warfare, waged between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the fallen world. And every Christian on the day of his or her baptism had been conscripted into that struggle on the side of Christ. Perhaps the most crucial feature here is the rite, where the ritual acts of renunciation, exorcism, and submission during which the convert turned his or her face to the west, which is the land of the evening, symbolically the realm of darkness and cosmic and spiritual darkness, where they underwent a rather forcibly phrased exorcism and they rejected, even reviled, and quite literally spat at the devil and his ministers and then turned to face east, the land of the morning and the light, to confess their faith in and submission to Christ." Not exactly the way that many people do baptism today, is it? Yes, baptism is warfare. And so it fits perfectly with what Paul is telling Timothy about the good fight. But it was especially important, I think, for Timothy to hear this because his calling went beyond salvation to formal ministry in the church. Like other Christians, as he remembers his baptism, he's to remember how he's called to fight against Satan and the evils of the world and against the temptations of his own flesh. This is his ministry in his own body, his temple of the Holy Spirit. And that's what is true of all Christians. But Timothy is also to make sure that the corporate temple, the church, remains pure. And he must use the weapons God has given him to fight the battle publicly. This demands righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. In this, he's to follow his Savior, the Lord Jesus. So Paul continues, I charge you in the presence of God. 
So what Paul's doing is he's placing him under an oath. In fact, that's the very same way that he was put under oath at his baptism. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. I'll talk about that in a minute. And of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. In other words, Jesus also made a confession before someone. And it was done also in relation to baptism. See, it was at that moment that Jesus himself was about to enter a different baptism. And yes, there's another baptism for our Lord. He says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized? He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. At that moment, Jesus' very next words were, do you think I've come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Now think of Jesus' confession before Pilate. In Matthew's version, it says, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. That's our Lord's confession before Pilate. But in John's version, it says, Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is clearly referencing the Levites from Levi himself right on up through Judas Maccabees. But no, his war is not against flesh and blood. Instead, he enters into the greatest battle of all at his death in the battle against the powers of the air and darkness at his baptism into death. Christ had come to set the prisoners free and by his death and resurrection invaded the kingdom of our captor and overthrew it, vanquishing the power of sin and death in us, shattering the gates of hell, plundering Hades of its captives. Christ came to save the world, to leave captivity, lead captivity captive, and to overthrow the empire of those thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers that have imprisoned creation in corruption and evil. See, he crushed the head of the serpent. He plundered the, his ancient foe. He took his captives to heaven and dealt that old fiend a death blow. Then by his own power, he raised himself from the dead. How? Because his soul was not dead, merely his body. And Jesus himself is life. So the apostle says, God gives life to all things. It's into that that Timothy, who's now been baptized into the death of Christ, by dying to his sin and come out alive through his resurrected new life, all symbolized in baptism, is now to go out and fight the fight and continue to fight it as Christ's body on earth. What does it say? Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. Timothy, live a godly life. Know that it's not going to be easy. This is war. It's not for the faint of heart. Christianity can't be. It's another kingdom intruding onto the kingdoms of men, and they don't like it. But you gave the good confession, and you've been equipped with every weapon needed for victory because Christ himself has gone before you in battle, and he won. Do this, Timothy, it says, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. In other words, from the first to the second coming of Jesus Christ, throughout the church age, this is therefore the call. You today have entered into an amazing story, a story that goes all the way back to Levi, indeed to the garden itself. Your story is now to be like Timothy's. Remember your baptism. Or if you haven't been baptized, come to life by the word and enter into those waters that save through ordeal and torment and tribulation and make the good confession before God and others. Remember what you are baptized into. You are baptized into the death and life of Christ himself. You were therefore buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. 
Paul tells the Romans the same thing he tells Timothy. You have now been fit for priestly ministry in the new covenant, serving as guardians and servants of the new temple in Christ. Your task is to keep it clean, to let no sin take over, to purify it through the fruit of the Spirit, to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness in all that you do. Take hold of eternal life that you were given and confessed at your baptism and do this until the Lord takes you home or he returns at the proper time. Now is not the time to put down your swords. He has not returned. We are still the church militant, are we not? And know that in all of this, faith alone is the victory that overcomes the world. Let's pray together. Father, we would ask that you would help us to understand a little bit of that story that we told from the Old Testament that is very clearly being obeyed by our Savior as he went before us as the great high priest. And now he ordains his people after he has saved them and baptized them by his Spirit, giving them newness of life. He tells them to go into the waters of baptism, confess the faith, and now go out and fight this holy war against the world, the flesh, and the devil that we have talked about. And that we're able to do this in the power of the new life that Christ has because he's been raised from the dead. He is now ascended to heaven at the right hand of all power and authority. He has all that we could ever need to win the war that's before us. Give us confidence in this dark world that when we go out from this place, that the warfare that we will engage in is powerful to actually do something good in this world. We know that it is because we have the testimony of Christ that goes before us and of your word that is sure. So help us to trust it today. Help us to look back on our baptism or to look forward to it so that we might know what it is that you've enlisted us into, into this great army. Help us to know that we're not fighting against flesh and blood, Lord. Too often it feels like that's what we get sucked into, and that's not the case. We fight against principalities and powers in dark places, and we would ask that your word would go before us and help us to conquer these things for Christ's sake and his kingdom.